Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the digital workspace inner workings. So welcome, Roger, to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, Ryan. Yeah, I'm Roger Sarbats. Um, I've just, uh, for the audience, I've just joined Ryan at Value Exec. Um, so I've been uh, a commercial leader in the IT software industry, particularly the software as a service, SaaS managed services industry for the last 20, 25 years or so. Um, my my background is I spent about 15 years or so in large American blue chips, uh, like Microsoft and HP. And then the last 20 years, I've spent growing um, startups and scale-ups and uh, selling them. So so that's my background. And I've just exited a recent business and I'm, I'm going, I've decided to do some independent work as a, a sort of fractional exec. So that's me. Great. Well, and, and welcome aboard as our first inaugural member. I, my, my static question, obviously, is, is what does the digital workspace mean to you? So maybe we get that one out the way and then we can dig in to some of the other stuff we, we've talked about over time. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a broad topic, isn't it, digital workspace? I mean, it's been talked about for decades and decades and decades. Um, I, I remember going back to the start of my career, actually, in the 80s when I worked for HP, and it was even talked about then, and then subsequently at Microsoft. Um, but for me, I think it's all about, in this day and age, it's about um, making people, whatever their jobs happen to be, more efficient, uh, more effective, having to spend less time worrying about IT, and making you know your workspace. So, for example, if you're in marketing or sales or whatever, it means that you've got access to information, relevant access to information, data at your fingertips without without having to go searching. You know, so so for me, that's what I've spent a lot of time when I've been taking on commercial leadership roles is making sure the tools and the workspace is there for the marketing and sales execs, so they can actually do the difficult work, the productive work rather than fighting with IT, which drives people insane. Yeah, you, you're speaking to me so much. I mean, that's exactly what I deal with, the, the, the friction. Get rid of that friction, whatever it is. Exactly. And and and, I, and, and sometimes I call it contextual computing. So the, the things that you need at the time you're doing something so that you are not looking for it or frustrated by it and, and all that stuff. So I think we're, you know, that's it's completely aligned. When we spoke... Previously, we were talking about um, value execs and doing fractional work. I mean, ha- have you done a lot of fractional work as well as as full time, or has it been sort of one more than the other? It's been more full time, uh, less fractional work actually. So all the roles that I've done previously have been I've done a couple of fixed term uh, projects. So where people wanted me to come in and do a turnaround, I did a about a year. Well, it ended up being nearly two years, but I joined a company about 10 years ago to do a turnaround of a business that they bought and hadn't integrated it into the main business. And um, uh, while you wouldn't call it fractional, it was a, a fixed term project with a fixed set of objectives because they thought this would last a year. It ended up lasting two years, but you know, that that's the basis on which I joined to do a project, uh, deliver the the results, turn the business around, get it back to profitability, and then that would be job done and I'd move on, which is what I did. And I've done, you know, a, a couple of jobs that started out 
as uh, sort of fractional and ended up full time. So it, it all depends on where you go into and, and how big a task it is and if they see the value. Um, you know, I've had a, a couple of approaches recently where people are thinking about fractional because it's many companies are at that stage. Say you get to one, two million, three million turnover, sometimes four million. They haven't hired their first commercial leader. They're worried about it. It's often the founder who runs the business. Um, they don't necessarily have a professional commercial and sales marketing background. So they're they're, an, they're amateurs at it, but they're very nervous about hiring what they see as an expensive resource. So, yeah, so I'm, I, I've, I've done those things and uh, done a few, but l- largely on a, you know, five days a week basis. Um, mm. But I understand the ones that want to do it on a two or three days a week. It would make sense. Yeah. And I think that that transition, you know, from, from having a founder own the business to having relinquishing control. Is, is a very difficult thing. I mean, it's a child yeah. in the end. You know, yeah. that you've, you've taken it from birth to where it is now and, and giving it up is, is difficult. And also you, you have to trust somebody that, you know, on paper and relationship looks okay, but you still have to give them the keys to the car and say, go drive it. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. And uh, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it so many times where the, the, the founder CEO, you know, they may have won the first one or two projects um, and they bootstrap the company themselves and it is their baby. And then, you know, that transition is really tough because if you do hire somebody in, I, I think in many respects, it's easier to hire a fractional person in because they're not necessarily a full time employee. They're not necessarily on the books with a full time contract. So. I would think, you know, the CEO may feel a little bit um, more relaxed about giving them some of the work rather than if you bring somebody in as CRO or CCO, that person and level of seniority, certainly at the level I go in, I, I would expect and insist that I would be given the keys to the car, as you put it, and not mm. have a backseat driver and not being given driving lessons by somebody who doesn't have your own level of skill. That's when that's when friction really comes in. And I think that's a major risk, actually, for, for founder owners. Um, if they hire somebody in and then they start to uh, kind of, you know, take over or start to grab one hand on the wheel or pull the handbrake on and change gear for them, that person will simply leave. They will just get frustrated, annoyed, you know, so you've got to be really, really sure. And I think this is where I like the idea for uh, transitional startups who are moving into that next phase to bring in a fractional because then they can start to see the value. If it doesn't work or there's a, you know, maybe there's a personality issue or, you know, either way it could go, there's an exit route. You know, they, they can end it or they can turn it down or if it goes well, they can uh, turn the dial up and do more. So, yeah, it just makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I think it's it's that balance between risk and reward. And, and I also think, you know, hiring in somebody, I mean, I was talking to a friend this morning um, who's a sales guy. And I was just, I was, I was trying to discuss the problem that I was having. And in the end, he just said to me, well, well, do you want me to come and just help you for like one day a week? I was like, huh, I didn't even thought about that. Like, yeah, I can just come and help you do X, Y, and Z. It, you know, just do it as a favor. And 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 that's a little bit of a, it gets it gets me over a hump. Yeah. For what I'm trying to do. Um he gets a little bit of satisfaction for whatever his reasons are, but that that unclogs the the pipes. We can go a little bit further forward. You know, that, from that point of view, there's no risk to me bringing him on. I get a lot of experience. He's not going to come on for months. You know, he's going to help me out for maybe a week or two just for some basic stuff. 
Yeah. But if I was selfish about it or, or restricted, I'd probably bang my head against the wall for two weeks, not yep. doing anything and yep. not making any progress. So, so I say, you know, that's the value to me is pretty clear. Um, and, and I think that's the important thing is you, you, you need to be able to release that control and, and admit you don't know something so that you can get that, that, that takes you forward. I think there's another dimension here as well, Ryan, and it's also speed to market and speed to value. Mm, because definitely. if you think about it, if you're like you just described at that particular juncture where you're either looking to bring on your first sales guy or maybe you've got a couple of salespeople and you've got typically people have got like an outsourced marketing team, whatever, but you need to bring somebody in. If you're making a decision to say, right, I'm going to go for it, I'm going to hire a chief revenue officer or chief marketing officer or chief commercial, you've got to start the search process. You've got to write a job description. You don't yep. really know how to write one because you're not sure having not done it. You don't know what the job content is. So you don't re- you don't know what you don't know. You then bring in maybe a couple of recruiters and you go through the mill with them. You you, you select a recruiter. You you go through getting CVs, you go through the you know the process of filtering people out, blah, 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 blah. Then you go through all the interviews. All this can take you, I would say, minimum six months. Then when you've chosen your final candidate and everybody's happy and you make a job offer, they might be on a six-month notice period, so um, three to six months. So then, you know, they may join you in three months if you're lucky or four months. Then you've lost, you know, 10 months from when you decided to do it, you've done nothing other than waste a bunch of time. Your eye's been taken yeah. off the ball of your business. Um, so bringing something fractional, can you can hit the ground running. You can get on with stuff. And actually that person might, A, it might be your, you might think, oh, actually this person's perfect. I'd like to offer them a job. Or they can help you with that transition to hire the person you need, knowing you know, and built, having built trust with them. So I think there's multiple dimensions to this. Oh yeah, I mean, no, the head. I, mean, I hadn't even thought about that to be quite honest. Because the world, I, the world I live in right now, I phone somebody and they start working tomorrow, so I don't even think about it. But to to hire somebody on a full time salary, where you're going to invest a huge amount of money. I mean, most of my stuff is contract, so it's easy. You know, bring somebody in for a part time to do some work and they leave. Yeah, uh, they come back when you need them again. But like, yeah, hiring. Yeah, you, know, you say six months plus three. Then you then you might hire somebody that's that's not as good as you thought. So you got to get get rid of them. Yeah. You know, because now they've hit the ground, they haven't hit the ground running. Um, the risk's massive. So that, I mean, it's yeah. happened. It's ha- I've seen it happen over and over and over again. And then when you think about it, you might have put a one and a half to two year hole in your revenue development plans. You might have created damage to the organization. They may have hired in the wrong people. It, it, it can be it can be an absolute disaster. So, you know, I, I would always advise caution. And this is the bit like, not I wouldn't quite say try before you buy, but there's an element of try before you buy, plus there's an element of that person will know how to advise you. So, you know, they say to that person, well, your job is to fix all these problems, get these processes in place, help me build my business, and then find me the right person to take this on full time. Then you've mm. not wasted any time and you're minimizing your risk as well. Yeah. And also that, you know, that, that fractional, if they're not working for you, you can always it's easier to get out of that contract than it is to get out of an employment contract. And then also if you brought in a good fractional with a good network, 10 to one, <clears> they're bringing in people that they know because now they know the business that they're working in and say, look, I've got this person who's worked with me before. They're pretty good. You know, this is who I'd recommend, or at least this kind of profile. Yeah. And then you've got something to start with, which also helps. 
Um, yeah, very much so. And I was thinking, you know, like, you know, having done uh, turnarounds and these, you know, uh, sort of fixed term contracts, you know, and I've, I've gone in to fix the business, but I've had, I've had to bring in some subject matter experts in, say, finance or HR to fix various issues and processes and things I'd spotted that were broken. And, and similarly with value execs, as you rightly said, Ryan, you know, you might you might bring somebody in who might be an expert in finance, but they might say, well, actually, I can see that your, your sales processes, your pipeline marketing's dreadful. I'm not the expert for it because I'm a finance guy. Let me bring in somebody who is. Or vice mm. versa. You know, if I go in and see things are broken in finance or not working, I can say, well, let's bring in, you know, I'll talk to Ryan and we'll go and say, well, we've got, you know, him, her, him, him, him. They can do all of that. And we can bring a squad in. Or I think you use the term pod. You could bring a pod yep. of experts in and you might land that pod for six weeks, eight weeks, three months, fix the problems, move out, and then move on. Yeah. And I, and I think there's a, there's a level of the A team sort of scenario where you bring in some you bring in a bunch to, to solve the problem and there's a great music at the end and they and they leave and the business is, is in a better state than it was before they came and they, then they're not far away either if you need them back again because i think that's some of the other things is is, is, is they can be sort of seasonal assistance or yeah. becomes like a like a virtual i don't want to say board except that, that sounds way too formal but a but a virtual sort of brainstorming advisory trusted servants service that they can lean on because it's a relationship and the people know know more about the business so i think, I that's, think that's very different isn't it than just a non-executive because i've worked with non-execs who tend to be either retired or semi-retired and they don't actually do any delivery per se they they're advisors as non-execs and they're sitting on the board maybe representing mm. somebody's interests but not actually doing any um I hesitate, I hesitate to say hard work, but, you know, actual delivery, you know, of of things that matter to the business. Yeah, uh, it's funny. I was talking to someone about that yesterday. We're saying like the sort of fractional role has now become the sort of middle ground between a operational person and the board. And a lot of people that go into non-execs thinking they're going to be operational and actually aren't operational. Yeah. Um, and they realize that that's not what they want to do. And, this, and the fractional thing has become more relevant now to be fair i work with some non-execs that are very operational they like to get involved they like to you know they don't just do the meetings they come and visit they come and redo the accounting system they like like the one guy was telling yesterday he, he was involved in the school he redid the whole financial processes and, and, and what package they were using and all that kind of stuff but he said he had the time and it was you know they didn't have the money and and you know he's an expert so he gave them his expertise yeah um but not everyone's like that. You know, some some people just want the board meetings and all that stuff. Um, I, I'm much more that ilk where if there's something to be fixed, I'd rather go and fix it than tell somebody else that there's a problem and how to fix it and then wait for them to fix it because that would just drive me mad. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, makes sense. So, now, with with your experience, I mean, turnarounds versus growth, I mean, what, what is your preference? I mean, what do you like to do? Or do you, do you like both for different I, reasons? I... Um, it depends on what the turn. Having done a couple of turnarounds, they are they are quite hard because um, I, I prefer growth. If I'm honest, uh, now you know because there are less things in place. There's less history. Um, um, with turnarounds, there tend to be a lot of skeletons and hidden problems, and, and often you can find with turnarounds the the existing board and, and execs in place don't know how to fix the problem. So they want to bring an executive in who's got the experience to fix them. So by definition, 
they don't really, in my experience, know where the problems are or what to look for. And then all the ones I've done, they tend to be deeper, more systemic, lots and mm. lots and lots of challenges. And it, it, it can be really painful and take a long time to fix. And not all problems are fixable. Um, and it can mean wholesale changes in people, systems, processes. It can be really, really quite, uh, quite painful. Whereas with growth, it tends to be, you know, um, a bit more exciting, a bit more dynamic. You've got a bit more of a, a sort of blank canvas uh, to paint on. And so that would be my preference. Um, I'm, I'm not against uh, turnarounds. It depends what the turnaround is and what their challenges are. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, but um, I would take a good look at a turnaround and say, that's for me. I can really help or that one I will pass. It just depends. Mm. Yeah, sure. I can understand that. I mean, and some turnarounds are not really turnarounds. They're more like pivots. Okay, you're going down this way. But now if we pivot your business, you become another business. And that's yeah. That's a, a metamorphosis as opposed to uh, um, doing the same thing, just more efficiently or more effectively. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I, I, I did one about, well, I actually joined when I sold my first sort of big startup in 2005. I ended up joining a, a much bigger corporation who bought me and then they put me into morph their business from being sort of in perpetuity software licenses and one-off projects to more recurring revenue and SaaS and things like that. So that was a pivot. Um, uh, so I wouldn't have, I wouldn't call that a turnaround, but that was more of a pivot. And that was exciting and enjoyable because you got some resources in place. You got the will. Mm. I'd got the global CEO behind me. And, and that was really interesting, actually. Um, that was exciting. Uh, so, yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. And, and with those sort of the growth that you look for i mean do you have a playbook that you would play to things you always do as you, as you sort of go to approach yes yeah yeah it's obviously flexible um yeah. but the things i always look for first thing i look for is what's the value proposition you know i always say start with the why you know why do people buy from you why do people buy your proposition why do people go to your company um a, a lot of companies get it back to front so they start with the what and the how so you know you 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 can find that by going to people's websites and they'll say this is what we do and this is why we're the best at you know installing these widgets and blah 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 that doesn't really excite anybody you know if you look at why people buy apple uh, uh, you know as opposed to samsung apple don't uh i don't think their phones are any better than samsung but they've got the branding and people want an apple because they want an apple because they they relate to that brand so I would typically go in and look at the positioning of the company and really digging into its value proposition and why is it different, better, more value to their customers than anybody else? And have they got their pitch right? So that's the starting point for me is to really understand have they got their pitch right? And does everybody in the company share the same playbook in terms of the pitch? Because that's often the case. If you ask, you know, 10 people, a company, what's your pitch? They'll all give a different version. They'll have mm. a, a different elevator pitch. So Fixing that to begin with is a really, really crucially important thing. And more or less everything flows from that, because from that you can determine the size of your marketplace, which geographies you should target, who your competitors are, who your target markets are. And then you then the next level down is, well, you know, who which companies are you going for? It by industry, by geography, and 
So target industry and then which persona are you selling to? Who's actually your target audience? Is it a chief technology officer? Is it a chief finance officer? Is it CEO? Is it who is it? Then from that, you can build everything around it. You can build your messaging, your marketing, your go to market, your systems. You can buy in the data to target those people. You can build your content around it. And then, of course, there are standard things that all companies need, like a good CRM system, a good data platform, good marketing automation, good content. And that is all very process driven. Um, so, yeah, so I think there's a series of building blocks. Um, the, the pieces of the Lego, if you like, might have different colors and flavors. But generally speaking, it's a it's a common sort of theme and set of uh, set of blocks. And, and what's a typical time frame? That you would start doing things i mean would you start day one or you'd learn first and then move or what's your the, there's a there's an element of discovery at the beginning so i i'd say there's a a few weeks of discovery two three weeks of discovery which is uh going around talking to people meeting people questioning people interviewing people uh looking at their uh their information their decks their collateral their website, uh, meeting with the marketing people and the sales people, and just getting a good flavor and going through with the sales and sales leadership on how they manage sales and marketing and CRM and sales processes, how they define uh, their pipeline, how they do their forecasting, which is always a dark art and a bit of a mystery in lots of companies. So really getting a, a firm understanding of that then making a decision as to, well, what are the priorities? What's, what's the thing that needs fixing first? Where are the good bits? Where are the bits that really need sharpening up? And then focusing in on those and then saying, okay, well, this is the program of works that you need. We're going to start with this, then we'll go on to that, and then we'll fix that, uh, and so on and so on. So, yeah, and then installing things like you might need a, a new CRM or it might need a new definition of sales stages and forecast process. That takes a week or two, and then you've got to go through a few cycles of sitting in on meetings and getting the salespeople used to the new process. You know, it's mm. like teaching somebody to drive a, a, a car when all they've ever done is ride a bicycle. You know, you know they, they actually need to understand the controls and repeat it again and again and again. So the meetings are smooth, and then the, the leadership has the confidence that all the salespeople and all the marketing people are on the same page using the same language, using the same methodology. And that's where you get this consistency and repeatability of sales processes. Um, similarly with content creation and things like that in marketing and the website, everything has to gel and everything has mm. to be consistent. So, yeah, so initial phase, a few weeks, and then it can be a couple of months, if you like, of the things I just mentioned, and then it might be a little bit of a, a lighter touch as you go through just to kind of dip in and out to have checks and balances and make sure that people are continuing to do the things that you'd all agreed on. Yeah, no, it's perfect. And I mean, the only thing I would add to that is I'd probably go and look at customers and hear what they think. And if you're selling a service or a product to them, like what are their gripes? What do they like? What don't they like? Um, that sort of thing. But uh, I mean, I'd follow a similar approach. And I think that's that's the nice thing about coming in from the outside in is you don't necessarily have the baggage or the legacy stuff top of mind. You're coming from a fresh perspective with, with knowledge elsewhere that you can help with and repurpose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've gone into companies before. I've worked for companies who said, you know, things like, uh, I, I oughtn't to mention the particular software, but they'll say, we're an XYZ shop. We use this for CRM. 
because the CRO or the CEO used it in his previous company and that's what we use. And you go in and it's like a dog's breakfast. You can't find anything. You can't get to any data. You can't find out any sales history. And it's just a disaster. But they're all married to it. And yeah. I find that really strange. You know, why why would you be married to a particular piece of software? You know, it's not it's not that that makes you successful. It's the processes and it's everything else behind it. Um, yeah. So, so sometimes it, it's it's hard to change systems. Sometimes you have to live with what you've got and then you have to you know adapt it and add a few things in. That's possible as well. Um, but yeah, and then it's it's got to be the ongoing coaching as well, because often the, the CRO, um, if you're advising somebody like that or a CEO, things like how you do account management, how you do target accounting, how you run workshops with your salespeople and talk the same language so that you can start to build effective sales strategies. All of that sort of stuff is important as well. And that takes experience. Yeah, and, and and it's a sometimes that evolution for the people is good as well. Yeah, you know, they get you, know, you can culturally get caught in the in the uh, as you say the founder does it this way, so we always do it this way. And you probably find there were people that were saying, "Well, I want to do a different way," and they and they didn't have the the, the political capital, let's say, or the strength yeah. to to go against it, so they didn't. But now that you you've come in as a fractional, now they've got a voice who's been brought in to get to 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 change the business. That's what the the mandate is. And now they've got someone you can talk to and, and they can bounce those yeah. ideas off and, and and really change things. I mean, I've seen it with a couple of companies now where I've been working with where um, even with major swap outs of people, they still have the same core culture. And and that's because of, of you know, various reasons. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. But sometimes you've, you've got to really find what's causing that culture that's not good. Yeah. And, and then, and, and, you know, cut it out or, or whatever the, the nice way to say it is. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 said before, it's not. I didn't invent this phrase, but I heard it somewhere. I don't know who it's attributed to, but you can't fire your way to success. But many organisations, particularly large American ones, or you know, they bring somebody, and I've heard this time and again. You know, oh, we're bringing them in this really aggressive chief revenue officer, and we're really excited. And this this CRO joins and starts firing everybody, and then hiring in all his mates from his previous company, and it's an even worse disaster than before. And then two years in, he gets fired and then they're back to square one. And then, uh, you know, CEO loses his job and the board appoints a, a whole new bunch of people. And so the merry-go-round continues. Mm. You've never actually got to the root of the problem ever. Yeah. Um, and the root of the problem could be you haven't defined your market properly. You haven't defined your value properly. Yeah. You haven't, def- you know, there's lots of cultural issues, you know, um, it, it, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah, that, that does seem to be a very Americanized way of, I mean, I've worked in a, in a few American corporates and it does seem to be like that. And I wonder if it's where that came from, if it, if it was a sort of Jack, 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 Welch, Jack Welch sort of thing where, you know, that was his way and that's how you ran GE and that's how you do it. Or I don't know, so it's, it's just because the European way is not that way and, and the South African way is not that way typically. You no. you work with what you've got and you just you just add the people you need and you slowly change out the people you don't. But you never never lose the momentum, which I think sometimes you lose the momentum when you do those massive swap outs. And it destabilizes people as well. I mean, you know, I I'm a fan of some of Jack Welsh's stuff. You know, mm. I was a big fan of his his first book, was, uh, Winning, wasn't it? And but he they had this corporate policy to get rid of the bottom ten percent every year. Um, yeah. 
Now, the problem with that, and I, I worked for Microsoft for a long time, and they had a points-based scoring system. And the problem with all of these kinds of systems in larger corporates, and then some medium-sized and smaller companies think they can adopt them as well because they think, well, if it's good enough for GE and uh, mm. Microsoft, it must be good enough for them. The problem with it is it creates politics. And then yeah. you end up with people fighting each other internally to not be in the bottom 10% as opposed to focusing on their jobs and doing, you know, innovation and looking after customers and, and what have you. So it ends up quite toxic if you're not careful. Um, yeah. So my advice has always been to um, the other, you know, assume that people want to do a good job and coach people. So I've always been a fan of the one minute manager, uh, which is a, a different way of looking at things, which is positive coaching and positive reinforcement. Of course, if people aren't performing, um, then and, and they're simply not capable of it or they're incompetent or, you know, they ned, they're uncoachable. Ultimately, you do have to get rid of people, but it shouldn't be your first knee jerk reaction because mm. you need to look at yourself as an organization first to say, well, is it something that we're doing? Do we not have the right systems, tools, value proposition, marketing? So, because if you just change the people and you don't change everything that sits behind it, the same thing is going to happen again. And all you get is massive staff turnover and huge mm. costs and you make no progress. So you've yeah. got to look at the fundamentals first before just swapping people out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where having having the, the outsider that doesn't have a, a vested interest is helpful because they yeah. don't. They, they can they can have those conversations and 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 talk to talk to all levels and, and understand things and you know one of the things that I learned through consulting over the years is that you want to talk to the people that are actually doing the work at the front lines the most because yeah. they'll have the best handle on what works and what doesn't work and not the not the people at the top and you know we've been at the top as well where you think yeah. you know what's going on but it becomes an Excel exercise not a um, a real exercise. You uh, told them what they think you want to hear as opposed to. Yes. Yes. You know, if you go in as a fractional, then you can ask all the daft questions that nobody else maybe dare ask. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. because you're not in the organisation. You're not you're not coming up to your annual review. There's nothing in it for you other than you're there for two, three months or whatever. And you're there to be honest and try and make a difference and, and improve things. And if that means asking tricky, difficult questions that nobody else feels able to, then that's part of the job, isn't it? Yeah, and I think there's a reputational thing to that too, or professionalism, where it's because you're on the fractional ticket, you know, you've got to show value the whole time you're there, otherwise you're out. Yeah. So you need to ask questions maybe you're uncomfortable because that's how you get closer to showing the value that that you're wanting to show. Yeah. If you asked if you asked all the easy questions, then they wouldn't need you in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So so what are your thoughts now with, with the way the technology's changing? I mean, do you think now that we've got AI coming and, and that's going to solve all the problems, do you think that's creating more opportunities? I think it creates more opportunities. I don't think it solves all the problems. I, I think, uh, you know, if you look at things like uh, ChatGPT, for example, you know, I've used it a couple of times and it's quite it's quite spooky how smart it is in terms of coming up with, you know, messaging and, and uh, phraseology and, and so forth. But I think it's just there to be used. I don't think it's taking over the human element. But I think what it does, I think it elevates people. You know, people have talked for decades and decades and decades about, you know, even fr from the Industrial Revolution onwards, you know, um, 
soon we won't be plowing our own fields with horses when tractors come out you know that's the end of that yeah well people find new roles you become more knowledge based and so on and so forth and it's you know when computing first started to become mainstream in the you know late 50s 60s so many tasks will be automated etc and i just think this is another evolution in that process so i think people need to embrace it and use it and i just think it's an evolution yeah i totally agree with you and i think the problem that I'm worried about is the people that aren't embracing it now. So they're just going to be left far behind as this stuff becomes more and more prevalent. Yeah. Uh, and, it's not, and, 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 and when I say that, I mean, yes, you'll, you'll end up with tools like Microsoft will release Copilot now and that'll be part of your subscription and you'll get it. And that'll be baked in. So you, so you sort of have to use it, but I'm talking about the, the other tools that are not mainstream yeah. that will give you an edge, but no one knows about it. So yeah. you get the edge because you know about it first until everyone else catches yeah. up. Yeah, it's those things that I think uh, will make life interesting for a lot of companies, a lot of people. Things like robotic process automation. There are so many tedious, repetitive tasks that are just it's like my my eldest son is a scientific researcher in cancer research and his intellectual capital is in the science. It's not in data entry and it's not in preparing data Mm. charts and things like that. He needs to be able to spend his time with his research team analyzing the data and looking at the trends and then producing the 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 conclusions and results and then adjusting the experimentation well that's just one example of where robotic process automation and lots of other examples could automate a lot of those tasks in the background of the the data management and so forth there's lots and lots Mm. and lots of examples of where rpa just takes that out of it um as I said before, it just then it just elevates people to using their their intellect and their knowledge and experience where it should be applied. Yeah, yeah. I was I was reading a very interesting book series I think where they picked up where they they're dealing with disease, and because of the large the large language model, which was reading all the reports, the medical reports coming through, it found a correlation, just because it was it was looking at all the reports mm. that they had that they hadn't seen. Yeah which is like the trick to the story and how they solve the problem. But it, it's very feasible that that would be happening right now. If you've got a, yeah. an LLM that's running across all your medical research and it's finding correlations that no one else has had the time to do, because not everyone can read every article. So you need somebody that can read every article and yeah. then, you know, abstract it and then join the dots really and say, oh, if you see that you, if you chew nicotine gum and you drink uh, coffee, um, your blood, your, your blood pressure goes up you know 200 percent, whatever whatever the stupid analogy is but, yeah yeah but, yeah. but it's, it's it's those things that if you weren't combining them together you'd never see and i think that's where uh, you know i'm very excited to see opportunities like that or even developing new types of medicines because yeah. the compounds can be synthesized and and processed based on their properties before they even run the experiment uh, and simulated um, yeah, exactly. And, and do millions of them, mi- millions yeah. of them. I mean, you know, they could run it overnight and come back and you could have done, you know, whatever, you know, mi- millions of iterations. And then they can actually run the real life test, but hone it right down to the ones that matter, as opposed to having wasted six months trying to simulate all this stuff in the lab themselves. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I still think you have to do a level of, of the manual stuff, even though you got all the simulations, just to verify that the simulations are still legit. But you're probably doing a sample as opposed to, as you say, six months. It might be a week's worth of work or two weeks or a month, but not six. And yeah. that cost and cost of time and and and, and resources to do all that stuff. You know, it just brings everything so much more um, down to be achievable, uh, palatable for people to take it on. 
Um, well, that's it. I mean, and it's a great example, I think, of the pharmaceutical industry, but just, you know, medical research in general before it even gets to mainstream pharmaceuticals. But, you know, they're spending billions on researching one therapy. And if you can mm. collapse that down by a few months, that's hundreds of millions of pounds saved and time to market and ultimately probably, you know, less sickness and, and lives saved, ultimately. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and I mean, I've been quite surprised, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, the amount of marketing sales tools that are coming out that are automating like outreach and profiling. And I mean, I was using public data to do that um, because I think medical pharmaceuticals are very difficult because of a lot of privacy rules and, and legislation, which I don't think is a bad thing either. I think it's good to have the privacy piece in there. But I've been fascinated by Apollo IO, which is the one I was looking at yeah. last week. Yeah. You know, the, the the way it's figured out the the sort of the, per, the 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 people it's finding and their profiles to the point that you can be so so uh, what's the word um surgical Tom? yeah on on who's gonna who you're gonna talk to or send a send a sequence to yeah um, and even the sequences are quite well developed i mean there's templates there that are yeah. thought out and yeah you know are. They are, and, and I'm a big fan. I've been using Apollo for a few years. There are others out there, but that's that's um, one of the better ones for, for Europe. Um, but then, you know, they figured out how do you integrate that data? How do you import that data into, you know, the likes of Salesforce or HubSpot and run yeah. marketing automation and sequences and campaigns and so forth, and even uh, scraping contacts and cross-referencing to LinkedIn profiles and then automating mm. that whole outreach program. Whereas before, even five, six years ago, it was very, very, very manual. You know, I had inside sales teams working for me that would be going to three, four, five, six different places, trying to stitch all this together. Just a horrendous uh, task. And then you're asking those people to be making 50, 60 calls a day as well, plus all that work. So if you can take that work away from them, and, and like you said, be very surgical, because if you're trying to target individuals by name, by job title, in, the, in your target company and target geography, it becomes very, very, very um, rifle shot as opposed to just scattergun, you know, firing into a, a dark forest and hoping something hits. Uh, mm. So yeah, it's a it's a big improvement. Yeah, no, it's it's um, it's like magic at the moment because I think you know because you don't know how it works. I mean, you can you can theorize how it's working, but you actually don't know how they're doing it per se. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a very clever thing to go on the top of. Well, what would be your your next thing that you'd be looking for from a an AI or or a way of working better for what you do? What would be something useful to you? Yeah, I, I think it will be around the sort of thing we just talked about. So, you know, if you could start to get a lot smarter with the tools and have the tools more tightly integrated so that once you defined in, say, a, you know, the equivalent of a, a chat GPT or an RPA type tool where you could say, I am targeting, I don't know, pick an example, uh, pharmaceutical businesses globally and associated laboratories between X and Y size, must be this number of people, and we're targeting these these individuals. And it could just go out, produce the sequencing, produce the, the value proposition, letter, email, LinkedIn request, mm. whatever it happened to be, and then automate those sequences for you, then collate the results as to who'd read it, who'd seen it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So have that much more um, automated and integrated 
And then you'd have your salespeople, your inside salespeople and your business development managers orchestrating it, but doing the the, the follow-ups and actually getting the, the discovery meetings after that. So, yeah, that would be uh, the holy grail. And it would also link in with the, the whole marketing piece as well. Mm. Um, you know, because as I said before, with ChatGPT, I've tried it a few times and it will come up with um, – you don't have to tell it much, and it will come up with some amazing marketing uh, material for you sure, and, sure and content. C- quite incredible. So it's not going to take much, I think, to start to stitch the components together with CRM and marketing automation and data sources like Apollo IO and so forth. So that would be where I'd want it to go. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, having, having spent hours trying to build all that stuff myself over the weekends, um, I would love to have that stuff just generated. Uh, and I mean, you know, I have a chat running with ChatGDP just around some one specific topic, and I keep that because when I ask questions, it answers in context of that of that topic, which is great. And I find that so useful. And I just wish that that sort of context could be just taken with me to other things and say, okay, now I'm inside of Apollo, apply that context so that you can do the sequencing for me, or you can find the ideal customers, or, or yeah. whatever it is. And the yeah. same with LinkedIn or anything else you do. Uh, I think that that would be really, I, I mean, I, and I think that'll happen. You know, I think it'll happen as well. I mean, there's been, uh, there are little bolt-ons you can get. There are little Chrome extensions you can, mm. you can buy, and they'll automatically scrape um, LinkedIn profiles for you. You can just add them in. They're just a, a Chrome extension, and and they'll start to do that. But if you could start to stitch that together and maybe have an orchestration layer that would just say, okay, I've got that running. I know what Ryan wants. I know we're going to add this in. We're linking. We're comparing it to the Apollo I/O database, and that's all going to go into my marketing automation. It's going to come up with a sequence, and off it goes. And you know, it's gone from you know five or six data sources, and it's just doing it in the background, and it's spitting back the results of people who've looked at your content, people who've requested further information, etc., etc., etc. So that will be the the next step for me. Yeah. If you want to get in contact with you, what's the best way? I'm on LinkedIn at uh, Roger Sarbots. Um, obviously, through Value Execs as well. I, my my contact details are up there. Yeah, they're probably the two best ways. Or on uh, a business email, which is rsalberts at btconnect.com. Great. Brilliant. Well, thanks for your time, Roger. It was great chatting with you today. Thanks, Ryan. And uh, we'll be chatting again soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.